Aloha. Welcome to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but nothing replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Today we're talking with Dr. Krishna Rao. He is a colon and rectal surgeon at Kuakini Medical Center, and we're going to be talking about common problems in some areas that most people don't like to talk about, but very important to make sure to know what to do should you have some troubles with anal problems, rectal problems, or anything to do with your colon. So this is part one of a two-part series, and we're going to start off talking with Dr. Rao about common things that people generally might be too embarrassed to talk about, but very important to their health. What are some of the most common things that you see in your office that people are embarrassed but should probably get checked out anyway? I think in general, most patients are somewhat embarrassed to talk about their ocole. There is a uh, societal stigma about talking about problems, particularly, I have to say, female patients, women, are uh, very ashamed, the older generation. Um, so I get all sorts of things. I get patients that have had really bad hemorrhoids, really bad rectal bleeding, uh, patients with um, incontinence for long periods of time, people with um, draining tracts around their anus. And many times they say that they were just, they had too much shame to come into the office and tell someone about it or to even talk with their primary care doctor about it. So it takes, I tend to see patients after they've been suffering for symptoms for a long time. Now you're a colon and rectal surgeon. This means that you went to medical school, you did a residency in surgery, you did a fellowship particularly specializing in colon and rectal surgery. So you've, you've been treating problems like this for years. So people really should not be ashamed or, or feel concerned. You've kind of seen it all. Yes, that's a common thing I tell patients. Uh, they'll be talking about, oh, I'm embarrassed for you to look down there. Usually I'll be like, this is either the fifth or the tenth one I've seen today. I promise you if I don't write it down, I'm not going to remember it ten minutes from now. All right, so shame be gone. Destigmatize. Now, let's break down some of the things you talked about. Hemorrhoids, common problem. Is that the only source of rectal bleeding? If everybody has just a little bit of bleeding and they think it's a hemorrhoid, is it okay to just assume that? So that's, a, that's actually a fairly complicated question to answer. If you're wiping after using the bathroom and you see a spot or two of blood, and it happens once every you know month, generally that's not something to worry about. If you're noticing with every bowel movement you're having blood, if you're having pain, if you're having a change in the way things feel, a change in the way that your stool looks, these are all things that are worth mentioning to your doctor. I will say I get a significant number of patients that have just been told for quite some time that their problems were hemorrhoids, or they just WebMD'd it and thought their problems were hemorrhoids. And their problems are completely different. Sometimes they're very minor problems that are easily fixable. Sometimes it can be something as serious as cancer, which I know we're going to speak about in the next hour. So if they do find that it's something minor, what are some of the treatments that you recommend for people that you see? Because some hemorrhoids, you don't have to do a whole lot. And sometimes you get to the point where you need a major surgery. Right. The interesting thing about most anal problems is the starting steps are all the same. Increasing fiber in the diet is probably the most important thing. 
none of us eat enough fruits and vegetables in our diet. It is very difficult to get enough fiber as the recommended amount. Most people need some sort of supplement if they're having issues. One of the most common ones I recommend is psyllium fiber. The reason why I recommend psyllium fiber is that it is both soluble and insoluble fiber. So there are health effects that are more for the primary care doctors, improvement of diabetes, weight loss, uh, blood um, lipids. Yeah. Sure. And then there's an improvement in the anus. The anus does not like to have to force out stool. So by taking fiber, you hold more water in the stool, and the stool is easily able to slip out past the anus, the reducing trauma to the anus. So I would say increasing fiber in your diet, increasing water. None of us are very good at drinking enough water, but that does um, translate into softer stool. And then if you're having pain and soreness, generally something like warm baths is very helpful as it relaxes the anal sphincter muscle and allows blood flow to increase temporarily to the area to promote healing. Those are usually the starting steps for most of the common anal problems. So where do stool softeners come in? Stool softeners can be used for someone that has chronically very hard stool. I generally don't recommend using stool softeners all the time unless a doctor has specifically told you to do that. One thing, there may be an underlying problem that's being missed and that you're covering up with the stool softener. The other thing is that stool softeners do not have the same benefits of fiber. They may make the stool softer and easier to pass by the anus, but it makes the stool more sticky and more difficult for the colon to pass along. So in order to have the nice, formed, easy-to-pass, clean bowel movements, and I say clean meaning you know, you can wipe easily or use the bidet easily, generally fiber is going to be a better choice than a stool softener. So could you get fiber from things like Metamucil? So Metamucil is a common brand name product that people use. Um, there's sugar-free, there's sugar versions, there's now a version that has collagen in it for those of you worried about your joints. So that's that's the brand name, the one that's been around the longest time. However, I don't think everyone needs to buy the brand name. There's store brands at Long's, every other place. Um, so I'm not going to endorse a branded product when I, it's pretty much all the same. As long as it's psyllium, good to go. Right. Psyllium husk, they're going to all taste a little different. Metamucil has the orange flavoring added to it. Different brands have different flavors. Some are unflavored at the natural food stores. You can mix them with other things. All right. So a good initial choice. If you know it's hemorrhoids, it's confirmed. Get more fiber, get more water, and warm baths. Yes, and that works very well also for tears in the anus, which is anal fissures. Now, that's a different situation, and that's really painful. Oh, extremely. The most common description of it is that you're either having glass pass through there or a knife passing through there. So how does somebody get an anal fissure? So generally, most people have their first anal fissure as a result of constipation. There is a, a your interabdominal pressure, you're squeezing down on the toilet, is pushing a hard stool through the anus, and as it's passing through, it rips the skin overlying the muscle. Once the muscle's exposed there, your anal sphincter muscle, every time stool passes it, it's almost like when you put lemon on a cut. It creates a really stinging feeling, and then because of that, the muscle tenses up, just like any other of our muscles. If you have pain, it's going to tense. The problem with that is that over time, when this isn't managed properly, 
your sphincter muscle can keep tightening and tightening and tightening up. So it, and it's a circle, so it gets smaller and smaller and smaller, which makes you more likely to rip in the future. And once that happens, how do you make it get better? I mean, how, if every time you are passing stool, it irritates it more, what can you do to stop that? So the first step we start with is the same thing we talked about already, is the fiber, the increasing the water in the warm baths. The warm baths relax the muscle. The fiber in the water help make the stool soft, easy to go by, and um, allow the stool to stick together, and it allows the anus to heal. Most anal fissures heal themselves, and you'll have no long-term problems. It's an unpleasant situation, but overall, um, you'll get better from it. How long does it take? It can take usually the ones that go away by themselves will usually start feeling better within a day or two. Afterwards, you'll start gradually feeling better. And then in a couple of weeks, you won't notice it. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here with Dr. Krishna Rao. When we come back, we're going to talk some more about some of the other common types of problems that happen in the rectal area that sometimes people are concerned, maybe a little embarrassed to talk about. But today we're going to talk about all of it. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, Bavarian Motor Experts, and Chaminade University. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, here with Dr. Krishna Rao from Kuakini Medical Center, and we are here talking about common rectal problems and issues. Right before the break, we talked a little bit about hemorrhoids, rectal fissures, a couple of other common things that you see. You mentioned that sometimes people are very concerned about rectal or fecal incontinence. That's something I've heard before. Often people have it for a long time before they actually admit it. What are the reasons why this happens and what can we do about it? So the most common reason that we see for fecal incontinence is childbirth. It's a um, female predominant problem. It's related to injury um, or stretching of the muscles and during the process of childbirth. And over time, it can get worse and worse. It can also be caused by prior surgeries in this area if you've injured the anal sphincter muscle before. It can be caused by the natural weakening of the pelvic floor as we age, particularly, and as again, talking about this, it tends to be a female problem because women do have smaller anal sphincters than men do in general. And then rarely it can be a secondary cause by something like either a rectal prolapse from chronic straining or by hemorrhoidal prolapse where the hemorrhoids are actually pulling out a small amount of stool as they come out. So those are all reasons why you could have it. How? What are some of the common treatments for it? I know that there's pelvic floor rehabilitation where they do a lot of physical therapy, strengthen the muscles. That might help for some women, but what are some of the ways that you can fix it if you can? So the first step is to identify why you're having the problem, which is why it's important to see someone who treats this disorder. Usually there's two specialties that treat this on a routine basis, and that would be my specialty and urogynecology. So once we make a determination about why you're having the problem, then we can start to treat, uh, to make interventions. If it's something caused by either a prolapse or hemorrhoids, we have to address the primary underlying situation. However, if it's related to a sphincter injury or to childbirth, 
we do two things primarily. We encourage you to constipate your stools a little bit. It does tend to be easier to hold on to more harder stools than liquid. Obviously, solids are easier for the muscle to hold than liquid, and then gas is going to be the most difficult for your muscle to hold on to. The other thing we do, as you mentioned, is pelvic floor physical therapist. There are some amazing physical therapists in the Oahu, um, Honolulu area that have great outcomes. A lot of times what happens is after one of these events, like childbirth, the motor coordination is disrupted. And you may be pushing at the wrong time and not relaxing certain muscles, and it can become extremely frustrating. And this can cause both incontinence as well as causing problems with evacuating stool out. And so when you do the therapy, they'll help to teach you how to eliminate and use the correct muscle groups so that you can improve things. Right. And they can strengthen the muscles that do hold everything in. So that's very helpful to a lot of patients. After that, if that doesn't work and you're still suffering significant incontinence, there are procedures for that. Depending on the cause of the incontinence depends on what we can do. There are small nerve stimulators that we can put into the pelvis that tell the sphincter muscle to hold on a little bit tighter. In certain situations, we can repair the sphincter muscle itself. In other situations, patients are more appropriate for having a colostomy, which is a bag connecting to the skin to eliminate waste. Now, if you get to the point where you're having fecal incontinence or rectal incontinence a lot, and it's something that you've done the rehab with, and you're, you don't have any other identifiable cause, is the colostomy one of the only ways that you could really keep yourself clean? No. Um, as I mentioned, the stimulator actually works pretty well for a lot of women It's very or, and men. It's very safe. Um, you can actually, the way it's put in, there's a trial period first. So if it doesn't work well for you, you just pull it out and it, you move on to the next thing. That is an in-state, or for some patients, they just would prefer that. Some patients have mobility issues. Some patients have some paralysis from prior injuries or strokes that they prefer the colostomy due to it being easier to take care of themselves and keeping clean. Well, so if you do have this problem, know that there are some technological advances like the stimulator that really could help to fix this. You don't have to have a big procedure. This is something that could be correctable, but should be correctly identified about the cause. Exactly. And it's something that a lot of times we talk much more frequently about using that for urinary incontinence, which is much more talked about than fecal incontinence. But it does work well for fecal incontinence. Let's talk about, you mentioned draining tracts. What would this be? So draining tracts are caused by something called anal fistulas. So a fistula, the way I tend to explain it to my patients, is like a tunnel from the inside of the anus to the outside. These usually start as abscesses or as boils around the anus. This happens not because of anything the patient did wrong. It's not a hygiene issue. It happens because we have small residual glands inside of our anus that are no longer used for anything in our day-to-day function, but these can become infected. And when they become infected, they enlarge and they go up to the skin. And then when they're opened up there, there's a constant pressure from the inside of the anus pushing out 
outside. So it will make tracks that can either stay open and drain or become you get boil after boil after boil in the same place. And the treatment for this would be? So this one's a little bit more complicated. We have to figure out some way to eliminate the track. If it's very shallow, the treatment's fairly easy. You can cut it open. By doing that, you cut some of the sphincter muscle, but you make a determination that that's an okay amount that you're not going to be dealing with incontinence later. However, if they're deep, it becomes a lot more challenging. Often these require temporary drains. We do procedures like flaps that try and block the internal opening. Um, we have a different procedure where we try and separate the muscle layers and tie off the tract between them. And sometimes these can be really, really difficult to treat to the point that you may even need a temporary ostomy to keep the stool from there. And you, we sometimes involve our plastic surgeon colleagues in order to bring muscle tissue from other places to plug up the hole. Are these common or relatively uncommon? The simple ones are actually fairly common. It's one of the more common things I see in my practice. The really complicated ones are more rare. Well, that's good because it sounds like complicated ones, very difficult to fix, could become a chronic issue. Yes, very difficult. And even the surgeries, they have about a 50% success rate in most of the more complicated surgeries. All right. The other common thing you mentioned is rectal bleeding. Now, ap apart from hemorrhoids, what else can cause rectal bleeding? So one important thing I want to talk about in the next session, which is colon and rectal cancer, but let's table that part for a minute. Some of the other causes of rectal bleeding are actually anal primary cancers or lesions that could become anal cancers. So Things we think about when we're talking about this, we talk about anal condyloma, otherwise known as anal warts. Uh, we talk about anal dysplasia, which is very similar to, I'm sure you've talked with some of the gynecologists about cervical cancer. It's actually a precursor lesion to anal cancer the way that cervical dysplasia is a precursor to cervical cancer. So those are two of the more uh, two of the other reasons why. There are also smaller reasons that we see uh, intermittently. You can have anal sexually transmitted infections that can cause it. You can have ulcers within the rectum from straining too much. So there are other smaller issues that we more rarely see. But in talking about the common things or the most important ones not to miss, these would be what I would be thinking of next. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Dr. Krishna Rao and talk a little bit about HPV and how vaccinating for that could really help to promote better health for you overall. In particular, might be able to help prevent some of the complications from anal warts we just talked about. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here with Dr. Krishna Rao from Kuakini Medical Center. He's a colon and rectal surgeon. And right before the break, we were talking a little bit about things that can cause problems around the rectal area. And we talked about anal warts. Now, cervical cancer we know is directly caused by HPV. Is anal dysplasia and potentially certain types of anal warts and other anal issues also caused by HPV? Yes, it's exactly the same. So it's the same viral strains that cause the impact on the cervix as cause the impact on the anus. 
shares a lot of the same risk factors as well. One of the biggest developments that's come out, and I think it's the past now almost 20 years, it's been a while now, yeah. is the development of a vaccine against HPV. So this vaccine is called Gardasil. It initially, back in the day, I would say, when uh, I was the age to get it, only had four, va uh, four strains in it. It had the highest risk strains. Now they've expanded it to have nine strains. This covers both the strains that cause warts, which are more of a cosmetic concern in most cases rather than truly dangerous, to something, uh, the strains that cause dysplasia and can cause cancer. What's the usual recommended time frame to get this vaccine? Because I know for women, for cervical cancer, they actually recommend that you give it to young girls before they ever get exposed. So the recommendation is to get it at the young age because the vaccine is the most effective if given before the individual is sexually active. So I remember this was a concern from a lot of parents when I was doing my medical school when I was in pediatrics. Oh, but if I give this vaccine, it means my child's sexually active. No, that's not what it means. It means you're protecting them before they ever become sexually active. You can catch HPV no matter how many sexual partners you have. I have patients that have had one sexual partner their entire life and they have complications from HPV. I have patients that have had multiple sexual partners and they have no complications of HPV. So there is no morality associated with this vaccine. The vaccine is safe. It's been used for a lot of years. Um, I'm a recipient of the vaccine. One of my key things though that I have, and it, it comes along with something you said, we often think, oh, women need this vaccine. However, it should really be given both to men and women. One, most women are catching HPV from a man at some point, so obviously that would interrupt some of the transmission, but also men can develop cancers from HPV. We can develop throat cancer and we can develop penile cancer and we can develop anal cancer. It's one of the only cancer-fighting vaccinations that we really have. The fact that we could directly tie HPV to cervical cancer was something that was a dramatic development when I first came out of medical school. And the idea that we have a vaccine to prevent it for both men and women, various types of cancer, is amazing. You know, I know that when the vaccine first came out, one of the discussions that came about was, you know, hepatitis B is a sexually transmitted disease, but babies get hep B vaccination now because we know that it's proactive, it's preventative, it's good. And so there's really no reason why not to consider HPV in the same light. Oh, exactly. And what's really interesting is if you look, cervical cancer rates are dropping in the United States and they're dropping about, what is that, 20 years after the mm -hmm. vaccine because there is a lead time. It's not like you catch HPV and then the next day you have cancer. There's a lead time to development. What um, we I'd like to see eventually is our drop in anal cancers because of the effect of the vaccine. We do theorize it's going to happen, but the highest risk populations are not getting the vaccine as much as they should. Who are those risk populations and how can we fix that? So the first thing I do have to say, anal cancer is fairly uncommon in the United States. It is about 10,000 cases uh, a year. Two thirds of the people that develop it are women. There are certain populations that have a much higher rate of getting it though. Patients, uh, people living with HIV are patients that are very high risk for anal cancer. As, uh, and we, it's because of the immunosuppression. 
The same thing we theorize, there's no good data on this, but that solid organ transplant patients are at high risk for anal cancer. Patients at intermediately increased risk are patients who have receptive anal intercourse. We often think of our men who have sex with men population for this. Patients who smoke, smoking is a big risk factor for anal cancer. And for unknown reasons, there's a slight predominance in the African-American community. So we should really be hopefully increasing our rates of HPV vaccination amongst everyone. But in particular, we need to look at who's at highest risk and make sure that we reach out and get this vaccine made available to them. Now, in Hawaii, I think in order to enter as a sixth or seventh grade, you have to have started to receive the series of HPV vaccinations. So that's a good step in a good direction. Do you still see people now in your practice that are not yet vaccinated? So most of my younger patients are vaccinated. It's when you start getting to the age group that I'm in, which is where, um, so like your 30s years old, that was at the time when the HPV vaccine was not being recommended to men. And so I have a significant number of patients that don't have it. And then a lot of my anal cancer patients are, and high-grade dysplasia, meaning advanced precancer, are in the age before this vaccine came out. So they, they don't meet criteria to get it because you cannot get the vaccine after age 45. If somebody is younger than 45 and they have dysplasia, is there a benefit to still getting the vaccine? Maybe some of the other potential serotypes that might make their condition worse? Or is that considered at that point not really appropriate? So that's a little bit controversial because we don't have strong data on that. However, the experts in the field do tend to recommend that if you haven't had it, uh, that you do. A most, a significant number of people that catch HPV will clear HPV. That's the reason that anal cancer and anal warts you don't see in every person that you're going around because it's a very easily transmissible virus. So our best bet against preventing it is prevent by doing something like vaccination and doing that wide and early in younger people before they are exposed to it and because we don't know who's going to end up needing that solid organ transplant. We don't know who is going to be in the minority disadvantaged communities. I mean, we knew to some degree, but you it's very hard to foretell. So the best public health intervention we have for this is a primary prevention of vaccinating everyone. Well, and when we accept the fact that this is so easily available, you can go see your pediatrician, your primary care doctor, your gynecologist. You really, in my mind, I think if you're age appropriate for the vaccine, there's no reason why not to. It's actually even easier than that. If you just log on to, I know, I only know this because I got, um, like I've had patients do this. You can log on to your Longs account and actually just go to the vaccination section and it has a list of every vaccine you're eligible for. And you can just click and show up whenever your appointment is, get it. You don't even actually have to go for most health plans to your doctor for this. At least that was my experience of um, I do routinely order it for my patients that have not been vaccinated that are at risk. Um, but it, it is a pretty easy vaccine to get. The hardest part is they make you wait 15 to 20 minutes afterwards and you have to sit in those uncomfortable chairs they have at the pharmacy. But 
Well, you know, the idea that pharmacists can administer vaccines now, I think, has really helped to expand the opportunity to keep everybody up to the current guidelines for whatever vaccines they need to have for their health. So in my mind, that's been a huge benefit that we saw really ramp up during COVID. Oh, yeah. Um, all of us have problems getting in with our primary doctor. There are not enough doctors and there are too many patients. So the fact that pharmacists are able to help us out by following guidelines and it's much easier to go to Long's than it is to go and to make a special trip to the doctor. So. All right. You're absolutely right. I want to thank you, Dr. Krishna Rao, for sharing your expertise with us today on The Body Show. You are a colon and rectal surgeon at Kuikini Medical Center. And we are going to have part two of our discussion when we talk about colon and rectal cancer. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. You can also find us on the HPR app. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll be back here next week talking more about issues with colon and rectal cancer. We'll see you then. Stay, stay well. Happy Monday.